beautiful. I mean, for a make-believe map of a make-believe world. There is the source of your troubles. Dark Island. A place where evil lurks. It can take any form. It can make your darkest dreams come true. It seeks to corrupt all goodness. To steal the light from this world. How do we stop it? You must break its spell. But Father, it is amazing what you were willing to sacrifice to break our chains. And what's even more amazing is how quickly we run back into slavery. How easily we're lured into the things that seek to make our darkest dreams come true. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you might break our chains some more. That we might live free. That we might identify where we are being lured, where we are being enslaved. And for your glory, be set free once again. And I pray that we will leave this place not using our freedom to become enslaved once again. Father, I pray that you would have burning coals touch my lips, that you would hide me in the cleft of the rock, Jesus. That I would not speak any words that your spirit cannot own. These will not be wise and persuasive words, but I pray that by your spirit, it will be a demonstration of your spirit's power in our lives. I pray that you will surprise us, that we will let you surprise us in the work that you want to do in our lives as we continue in your holy word. For your glory, Father, and for our good. In Jesus' name. Third in the C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia, the voyage of the Dawn Treader begins with Lucy and Edmund and their obnoxious cousin being called back into Narnia by Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are familiar with the, with the books and then now the movies being made of them, Narnia is a uh, place where animals talk and where good versus evil, and there is a constant struggle. In this particular film, though, in this particular story, it's a little bit darker than the others. You know, in, in A Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, there's a particular evil tyrant that there's being this good in this battle for evil. And again, Aslan, a picture of Jesus Christ, has called children from our world into this world of Narnia to be a part of his work in establishing his rightful, his rightful authority in Narnia. But again, this one's a little bit darker. It goes a little bit deeper than the previous two books. And rather than dealing with just a specific battle of evil versus good, it expands and goes, goes into a little bit darker places to a greater theme of evil. Not just one person, not just one um, antagonist, but themes of evil like greed and power and beauty. And begins to explore just how deep and wide and vast evil is and the many forms that it takes. 
This scene that we just saw explores both the source of evil and how its spell is broken. And it reminded me of our journey in Nehemiah. As we've watched the children of Israel repent and come back to Jerusalem and to begin a project of being restored and being rebuilt, they have had to deal with the evil tyrants, these enemies that we've been dealing with. And yet as we get into six, we begin to see broader pictures of evil. More temptations on Nehemiah and the children of Israel beyond just these tyrants that they've had to deal with initially. These people are again about to be restored. And we're going to see in the next weeks to come, revival is going to happen. But before that happens, there's one last attempt to lure them and to enslave them. And again, we see this evil taking more forms than just these enemies that have been taunting them. Like the pull of Lewis's dark island that seeks to corrupt all that is good, we see evil in these two chapters trying to do the same thing, taking on different forms in its attempt to make the darkest dreams of God's people become a reality, their nightmares. But we also see in these chapters what it takes to break the spell. And it's so beautiful what we see in here and how to resist the evil seductions of both the secular world as well as the spiritual world. And I think this is what's so fascinating, and you see this in the Chronicles of Narnia as well, is how the spiritual world itself can be a temptation for idolatry. So let's take a look at the first, the secular seductions. In Nehemiah 6, 1 through the beginning of 2, Now when Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalot and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. So evil lurks in the form of popularity. Boy, if you've been to a junior high campus, you already know that that is true. So these guys are saying, come on, join our high-level meeting. Join our summit. We misjudged you. You actually are pretty amazing. You want to play with the big boys? We're inviting you to come and be a part of us. It's flattering to have our success noticed. It's flattering to have someone give us some affirmation. But if popularity with the world is what we want, our darkest dreams will become reality. And in fact, all you have to do is remember junior high to see that. My junior higher asked me, Mom, were you popular in junior high? And I had to tell her the truth because she needed to know. You know what? I was. And I I did many terrible things to be that. Many things I regret, many of my darkest dreams became realities in eighth grade because of what I tried to do to be in. And ladies, we're just big junior hires. And if we try to be in with this world, if we try to be... Play with the big boys. Our darkest dreams will be realities. And this popularity that they're calling him to comes with protection. And isn't that kind of true on the junior high, high school campus too? You get in with the in crowd and you've got a gang, so to speak, don't you? So come on in. Be with us. Be with the big boys and we'll give you protection. It's tempting to trust an alliance for protection. To trust an alliance with the world as a backup plan, isn't it? Nehemiah is being tempted to have a backup plan for the work of God. To take out an insurance policy by making friends with his enemies. But what is his response? I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times this way and I answered them in the same manner. What I think we see as we look at the first five chapters of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah had an awesome fear of the Lord. 
And because he had a fear of the Lord, he had discernment. Did we not see that in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5? He continues to seek God's heart. He continues to pray, fast, weep. He had an awe of the Lord. And God tells us the fear of him is the beginning of wisdom. Shunning evil is understanding. And so Nehemiah, because he has such an awe of the Lord, he's able to see clearly the bullies. He's able to see clearly what he's being lured into and how it is not an insurance policy. It is not going to be a positive thing. It is going to create his darkest dreams to become a reality. This wisdom, this awe of God, enabled him to see clearly that Ono, although it's equal distance to all of them, and it should be, makes sense, let's meet in the equal distance to all of us, it actually borders on hostile territories. And it's a whole day's journey plus from Jerusalem. That means we get you out there, and anything can happen to Nehemiah, and it would take days before the children of Israel to know what happened to him. And they would be subject to the interpretation of what happened to Nehemiah. He gets to see this because he's not enamored with popularity. He's not enamored with insurance policies, protection for his plans. He trusts alone in the Lord. The fear of the Lord gave Nehemiah discernment. But, and this is the take-home, it just has overwhelmed me, But it was his living encounters with his heavenly father that protected him from those idols of popularity and protection. So listen carefully. The fear of the Lord will enable us to see the enemies for who they are, able us to see the idols, able us to see what we're being lured into. But only a living encounter with our daddy, our father, our covenant God we talked about a couple weeks ago, only a living encounter with him will enable us to resist the pull. See, it's one thing to see it. It's another thing to not give in to it. Many of us see the idols. We know they're there, but we're still giving in to them because we haven't had a living encounter with our daddy. Nehemiah has had a living encounter with the God of the universe. He does not need popularity. When you have a living encounter with the God of the universe, you cannot get any more popular than that. Amen? When you've had a living encounter with the God of the universe, you don't need any more protection than that. He is able. He is mighty to save. What about us? We see that Nehemiah, his living encounter had to do with being involved in the work of God. How did he see God at work? He joined God in his work. And so the question for us is, what work are you involved in? What great work of the Lord are you involved in? Every one of us are called to be engaged in a great work of the Lord. It's called bringing his kingdom to this kingdom. And the level at which you are involved in that work is that how much you'll be able to resist the lure of popularity and protection. So what great work are you in? What great work of the kingdom does he have you involved in? talking to my son who's 21 and kind of in that you know dating single stage and actually just started planting these seeds into my almost 16 year old daughter it is not okay for you to just date a boy or a girl who says checked box i'm a believer don't do it i've counseled too many women who have done that too many men who have done that you need to only pursue or be available to another believer who is engaged in the work of the kingdom of god if they are not engaged in the work of the kingdom of God, discipling them, it doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be vocal, it doesn't have to be large. Are they discipling anyone? Are they, are they in the word of God? Are they seeing God work in their life? Are they engaged in ministry? If not, you are going to end up with somebody, unless the Lord miraculously intervenes, which he often does, 
you are going to end up with a spouse who is going to be lured by idols. You're going to end up with a spouse who is going to be constantly fighting popularity, protection, position, esteem, greed, beauty, all of it. Now, even when you marry someone like that, there are no guarantees because people change. Absolutely. And it's no guarantee. And I don't want my kids to think there's any guarantee. Marriage will always be a bit of Russian roulette. Amen? (laughs) But I would say your chances are a lot higher. A lot higher. And so what are we doing? Who are we engaged with? Who are we spending our time with? What about us? Are we engaged in a great work of God? It's one thing to fear him and to know his word and to see the evil. It's another thing to not get pulled into it. And when you are busy doing the work of God, engaged in living encounters with him, not just working with him, but in living encounters with him as you serve him, those things will not hold a lure for you. They will not be attractive. The popularity you find in that and the protection you find in that will protect you. John Piper says it this way, we were, meant to be some, we were not meant to be somebody, we were meant to know somebody. Nehemiah gets this. I don't need to be somebody. I already know the somebody. I don't need you to affirm that in me. And who is this somebody that Nehemiah knows? And this goes into the whole protection thing. For by you, God, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We can't get any more popular or protected than that. Can we? So evil lurks in the form of popularity and protection and also in position. You know, he's tempted to join the big guys, and now this isn't working. And so now the big guys are going to try to kind of ruin his name among his own people. How tempted is he by how he looks to other people? Ouch, this one really hurts. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. So after four times of Nehemiah refusing and saying, I'm doing a great work here, I don't, I'm not going, he finally gets this fifth message, which is an open letter, which basically means everyone has read it along the way. On this 20-plus mile journey... From Samaria to Jerusalem, everybody has been exposed to the lies about Nehemiah. And it was quite insulting, not just in what they wrote, but how they sent it. A letter to a governor, a letter to an official, should have been sealed. It should have been in a a beautiful pouch. It should have been carried um, in a specific way. The fact that they hand him this open letter was an insult. It was intended to make Nehemiah look bad among his own people. It was intended to knock him down a notch or two. It was intended to insult him. And then on top of it, it tells lies about Nehemiah. They wanted both the outsiders and the Jews to see Nehemiah as an opportunist. Not as an official, but to knock him down. And unfortunately, as we know in our own lives, such gossip spreads like wildfire, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great if good gossip spread as fast as bad gossip? I mean, could we just decide as a group of women we're going to do that? Could you guys just decide you're going to spread really good stuff? Get permission even to spread the good stuff, but let's spread it. But bad stuff spreads much faster, doesn't it? There is some truth to the letter. The Jews are waiting for a king. The prophets are prophesying that a Messiah is going to come. 
But the, the, the accusation, the false accusation in it is that Nehemiah is a part of rebuilding the people to anticipate the Messiah, not to set himself up as the Messiah. So how hurtful is that? Here he's giving his life, his sweat, his tears to rebuild a people so that the Messiah is welcomed so that they can anticipate together the excitement of a Redeemer that's about to come. And now he's accused of trying to be that Redeemer. I don't know if you could really insult Nehemiah anymore. You really couldn't when you look at this man of God. But he doesn't react emotionally. He is no victim. His God is sovereign. He's had enough living encounters with the God of the universe that he doesn't need to react emotionally. I love what Ed Welch says in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, highly recommend it. When feelings become more important than faith, people will become more important and God will become less important. Ouch. When feelings become more important than faith, people will become more important and God will become less important. He subjects his feelings to truth so that God remains on the throne and not people. Ladies, we have got to subject our feelings to truth. If we do not subject our feelings to truth, feelings are a good thing. They are not a bad thing. They tell us a lot about ourselves. But we must subject them to truth or else people will replace God. Positions, popularity, protection. Nehemiah doesn't give in to the dark island of self-justification. He doesn't need man's approval or esteem. He refuses to send his own little open letter. But he does deal with it honestly. But he doesn't leave the work to go run around and, re, you know, did you, did you read the letter? Did you read the letter? Oh, i got to run over to here and see if they read the letter. And, you know what, i got to take that 10-mile journey this way to make sure they didn't read the letter. I mean, how often do we do that? We leave the work of God to go try to clean up our name. You know, we should stay with the work of God and let God clear up our name. He does a really good job of it. In fact, he does a much better job of it than we could ever imagine. I know from personal experience. Nehemiah's response is so great. No such thing as you have said, no, no such thing as you say has been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. (laughs) For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Imagine if Nehemiah had run around and tried to clear his name, what that would have left the people. What confidence they would have actually lost in him. And yet he stays secure in the God, his relationship with the God of the universe. Nehemiah's fear of the Lord enabled him to be discerning. See, it's kind of interesting, Sambalat, he actually betrays himself, because if Nehemiah is really trying to set himself up as king, he shouldn't be known talking to him. That would be collaboration. So he realizes, because he's got the fear of the Lord and not man, he's able to think clearly and realize, this has to be to harm. This has to be to throw people off and to ruin my name. Because if I really was trying to be king of Judah and overthrow and rebel against the king, Sambalot should have nothing to do with me because it will be his head also if he meets with me. So he's able to think clearly because of the fear of the Lord. So he doesn't need to clear his name also because he had a clean heart. Sometimes we run around trying to clean our name because there's a teeny bit of truth in it. And so if we remain faithful to the work of God, intimate with the person of God, we will have a clean conscience and that will free us from the need to clear the 90% that's not true, that we feel like we have to clear because there's 10% that is, is true. As I said before, I've had some personal experience with this, and one of the last encounters I had was really intense. I had a woman meet with me who had 
issues with some of the things that I was teaching and um, ways in which I was teaching, and I, I prayed to be very teachable and listen, and there were several things that she said that I, I thought, you know, that's, that's actually really warranted. I see that in Scripture, and I asked her for forgiveness, and then she went on to share some other things with me that I didn't really think I should receive. I was praying, trying not to fear her, fear God instead, and be discerning. And I tested it with both my husband and my pastor, some of the other things that she had shared, and agreed, we all agreed, that I needed to, to not accept some of it, that it wasn't accurate. Well, unfortunately, this wasn't met very well by her, and so I was then sent a stack of scriptures attacking me, one for me to read every day of the week. And they were saying things about me that, I didn't believe were true as I looked at scripture and I looked at my life and I asked again my husband and my pastor to look at my life and say, is this what you see? It was very, very painful. But you know, even though I had some, even my husband who wanted me to defend myself, I knew they weren't true. And so I let it go. You know, at that point, we were at an impasse. And I didn't need to try to just take each of those scripture verses and explain to her why those don't, aren't fair accusations of me. I had a clear conscience. There were things that she said that I had to take to heart and I needed to seek forgiveness for and ask God to change. But there were other things that were false accusations. I love that Nehemiah prays for strong hands and to not be distracted by rumors. And that is how I pray I will respond anytime. And I pray you'll respond to any time you are falsely accused, is to pray for strong arms to continue what you're doing. Because I believe that some of that was to distract me and to keep me from doing what God was calling me to do. And so to pray for strong arms, humility, teachability, test it with good counsel, because sometimes the accusations are true even though we don't think they are, because we aren't seeing ourselves clearly. We have blind spots. So we test them by someone who's faithful and true to God's word. But then when we know that they are not true, we then release that to the Lord and pray to not be distracted. I love what John Piper says again about feelings and being distracted. My feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. What that, when that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God. Purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. And ladies, as I shared that example with you, that was a long journey of being able to submit my feelings. I was very hurt, very troubled. I was immobilized. But there's a point in which we have to subject our feelings to truth. And we ask God prayerfully to then change those feelings to believe what is true. So the fear of the Lord gave Nehemiah discernment. But it was his living encounter with his father that protected him from the spell of man's approval. And I would say the same was true for me. The fear of the Lord enabled me to discern. Knowledge of God's word enabled me to discern the accusations. But if I didn't have a living encounter with my daddy, I would have been lured into needing this woman's approval and compromise. We need to not just have a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, but a living encounter with our daddy, that frees us from the need of man's approval. Because whose approval is all that matters 
the Lord Jesus. He is our defender. He will take care of it in his timing. It may not be on this side of, the, of, of heaven that our name is cleared, but he will take care of it. Nehemiah's personal security was rooted in his son relationship with the God of the universe. What greater position could he hold? What greater position can we hold than to be the daughter of the Father, the Lord God of this universe? Who says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will never forget you, this says the Lord. Behold, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Do you love that? Your walls are continually before me. Your restoration, your rebuilding, your revival is continually before me. So what about us? The only freedom available for us, the only way to break the spell of, of, of this need for man's approval is personal security and the relationship with our daddy. Fear of him and a living encounter with him. So it's not that surprising that Nehemiah resists these secular seductions of popularity. I mean, it probably didn't surprise you that he could resist popularity and, and protect, protection by making an alliance with his enemies and, and even position before his people. God had been so faithful to him. We have seen this in his character over and over again. But what intrigues me is his ability to resist the spiritual seduction. Because Nehemiah is a man that is after God's heart, is he not? He is a man who wants to be used by God, be, be pure before God, to not step out of sync with God. So when we are in that place, we are then susceptible, not so much to the secular, but to the spiritual, form, spiritual seductions that can take forms of evil. And we see that in this, in this um, passage in 10, verses 10 through 12. And what I love is that the deep nature of Nehemiah's relationship with God enables him to be caught off guard and still resist evil. Boy, when we have an intimate relationship with our God, living encounters through doing the work of God and and loving the person of God and letting him love us, we can be caught off guard by evil and still identify it. Isn't that amazing? He could be caught off guard. I love that. So the spiritual seduction. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, I'm going to say that's hard words, the son of the hard word, the son of the next hard word, who was confined to his home, that's all you have to do with scripture. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go in the temple and live? I will not go in. Evil was lurking in the form of so-called prophecy. Ouch. This is scary, ladies. This is true. This is real, and it's happening in our day. Nehemiah went to a so-called prophet's home who had apparently heard a word from the Lord for Nehemiah. Now, I love that he goes. He's teachable. He's hungry. He's listening. And it's great that he goes, even though probably bringing him into the home was to make him look bad and to make him look weak. He was okay possibly looking weak among the people because he wants to hear a word from the Lord. And this is an oracle that this this man gave. And so it sounded even more God-ish because it was in poetic form. This They Will Kill You With Twice was actually a Hebrew poem. So it sounded more God-ish. It sounded more like it was from the throne of God. The repetition was intended to convince him it was from God and also to frighten him. To get Nehemiah to trust a word from the Lord over the Lord of the Word. Oh, ladies, we must be so careful 
that we don't run to a word from the Lord over the Lord of the word. Because we can find words from the Lord that will encourage us to go ahead and compromise. That will make us feel better about our own stuff. And when we want a word from God more than we want God of the word, we're in trouble. We must be so, so careful. Prophecy that this, this supposed prophet gave him was regarding a spiritual project. Save yourself. Save the work. Seeking to corrupt all good. Bad means to a supposed good end. You need to finish this work. You're God's man, so protect yourself. Protect yourself. Come with me. I'll get you into the temple. I'm a priest or a prophet. Come with me. Save yourself and save the work. Nehemiah is being seduced to break God's law in order to save his life and to keep a project going. It is amazing how quickly, as Christian leaders, we can compromise God's truth to so-called save God's work. Yikes. We must be so, so careful to believe that the work of God cannot be done without us and cannot be done without our compromising. But Nehemiah's fear of the Lord enabled him to be discerning. And what was his response? And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in a way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah had already seen that this restoration and rebuilding and revival of God's people was God's project. He was breaking living, making living stones out of the people. God had proved himself faithful over and over and over again. And I believe Nehemiah knew he'll be faithful without me. Oh, if we could get that, it would keep us from compromise. That God can be faithful without us. We may start a project and we may not be the ones to finish it. And I can tell you, ladies, those of you that are moms, that is reality of motherhood. We start the project, we don't get to finish it. <laughs> the Lord God does, and their future spouses do, and other people in their lives. And what are the things that God is calling us to, we must not hold so tightly. If we hold them tightly, we will compromise to hang on to them. We must be willing to let it go and trust that God can finish what he has called us to begin with him. Nehemiah has already seen that this is God's. I will not compromise to save myself or to get the work done. It's not about work. It's about a relationship. I'm not allowed in the temple. I know who I am, and I know who God is. The Holy of Holies, where he's asking him to go, only the high priest could go. And only once a year. And it was to offer the blood of, a, of an animal so that the people's sins could be covered for the next year. It was a sacred place. It was where God came down and he met his people. And there were strict regulations about it. And Nehemiah knows that's not who I am. That's not what I've been called to do. And I will not do this thing. I could die. Much less be taunted for this act of weakness. Nehemiah's knowledge of the Lord and his word enabled him to see that the so-called prophet was a false prophet. And I loved this passage in the study. I actually looked it up in the King James Version because I thought this was more helpful to me anyway. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. When we go to counsel, if they do not speak according to God's word, it's because there's no light in them. And we must be so careful. And Nehemiah's fear of the Lord enabled him to discern that. 
enabled him to see right away and to even know who was behind it. I find that so amazing. Nehemiah being willing to listen is a great lesson to us. We must be willing to listen. I cannot tell you how many times I've had somebody say to me, especially when I'm speaking other places, I have a prophecy from you from God, or I have a word for you from God, or I have an encouragement for you from God. I always listen, but I pray. I pray, I pray, I pray. And you know what? I have been blessed by one particular one this last Christmas that was exactly what I had cried out to the Lord, asking him about. She was able to tell me exactly what was on my heart and what I needed to hear from the Lord. But out of the one that was right on, I've had many that do not line up with Scripture and are not true. But I think we need to remain teachable. We need to be re- remain open. If it, if it lines up with God's Word, if it's truth from His Word, then the person giving it to you is of the light. Be careful. But we need to remain teachable. I love that He was teachable. Who do we listen to in the work God's called us to? And again, for those of you that are moms, God has called you to a great work to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Who are you listening to? What prophets are in your life telling you and advising you? Are you careful? What about the great work of marriage? What about the great works within the church that God's called us to? What about our testimonies in our neighborhoods? Whatever work he has called you to do and he's called all of you to one, who are you listening to? We must be so careful who we are listening to and testing what they say to us because they will encourage us to compromise in order to get the work done. We must be so careful. I loved listening, watching the hearts of our leaders as we talked about how important this is in our leader training. We had one leader here just weeping, realizing that what she says is, is so important at the table. And then having another leader on, a, on Tuesday's leader meeting weeping over, I have walking with a friend through something, and I just want to be so careful that every advice I give her is right from the Word of God. And she was weeping over the desire to be accurate and to be a person of the light. Ladies, are we careful at the advice we're giving? Are we pouring over Scripture? Are we willing to say, I don't really know what God's Word says about that. Let me go find out even if it's not what they want to hear. We must be so careful to what we're listening to and what we're giving. It must be in the Word, and so we must know the Word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word and Holy Scriptures is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the Word of God. So Nehemiah's fear of the Lord gave him discernment. But his living encounter with his father through the word protected him from the spell of false prophecy and spiritual projects. Don't miss it. His fear of the Lord gave him the discernment. But his living encounter with God through the word of God protected him from false prophecy and putting a spiritual project as his idol. His personal security was rooted in his relationship and not in a project. And if the project called... God called him to would bring death with these enemies. He would rather die doing the right thing than die doing the wrong thing. Ladies, I think most of us, would, if we're honest, we just as soon die later doing the wrong thing than sooner doing the right thing. Nehemiah was willing to do the right thing no matter what it cost him. Somebody was asking me recently about, I had made a comment about not being afraid to die. Well, what about your children? Don't you think God's called you to a work with your children? 
I think God can handle them just fine without me. Is that my preference? Is that the best thing for my kids and my limited understanding? No, but if that was God's choice, if that was his sovereign decision, then the work will go on without me. I would rather go doing God's work than try to preserve myself in some way and live longer and compromise. Evil is lurking in the form of false prophecy, and it's also lurking in the form of these spiritual projects. And lastly, it's, it's lurking in the form of pride. Nehemiah has resisted and resisted and resisted, and yet he doesn't give in to the idol of pride. I love this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elu, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly on their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God had brought to pass everything he had called Nehemiah to do. The wall was finished. You just want to hear a big applause. Not yet, though. And what God had laid on the heart of Nehemiah to pray for his enemies also came true. (laughs) Remember he said, turn back their taunts on their own heads. Here we have that happening. So we know it was a prayer of God that he was praying. The enemies of the Jews had not only discovered the true identity of the Jews, that they're living stones, but they also recognized their own identity. That they're not all that in a bag of chips, right? And I love how uh, I love how Tammy Daly brought this up at our leader meeting about the zodiacs. Did you guys read, hear, hear about all this? How they've changed all the dates. And so I am no longer an Aries. I don't even know what my new thing is. I don't want to know what my new thing is. But if you can imagine people who have stated their whole existence, made all their decisions based on their their zodiac sign, they're not even that sign anymore. And I, I thought and when she brought that up with this, I thought that is such a great example. Their whole foundation has been ripped out from under them. Everything they thought to be true has been turned on their own heads. They have lost themselves. They have fell on themselves. They have an identity crisis on steroids. Their hope, their hope is the rubble that they talked about. In the fear of the Lord, Nehemiah doesn't let his guard down, though, now. He doesn't start applauding and going, cool, the wall is finished and my enemies are, are <laughs> a mess. He doesn't take time to be, applaud himself, much less take pride in it. He t- takes He is cautious to be careful. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes." He is careful. He's got order. He knows the work is not done because it's not about a wall. It's about a people. And revival hasn't happened yet. It's not done. His fear of the Lord enables him to discern the dark island of pride that will stop the work short of what it's supposed to be. His awe of God, his fear of God, opens his eyes to the fact that he has other people around him that can finish this work and that can work alongside him. And so he's not so caught up in it. His security and his relationship to the Father enables him to allow others to lighten the load, to come alongside and to be a part of this work. Ladies, we know we have an idol of pride when we don't let others come along in the work God's called us to. Timothy Keller says, Idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back. But they can be supplanted. By what? By God himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in his existence. Most people have that, yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. Nehemiah had had enough living encounters with the God of the universe 
that he had wisdom to see that there were people around him to carry the work on, that he could step aside for others. We'll see him step aside for Ezra and that God would finish this work. That idol of pride can't take root because it's been supplanted. If we ever hope, ladies, to remove the secular and spiritual idols that take all kinds of form that are in our life or to resist the ones that are calling out our name, we cannot just uproot them. We have to replace them. And there is only one replacement, and that is a living encounter with our Heavenly Daddy, our Heavenly Father. And this encounter is made possible by the true King of Judah. See, there was truth in the letter. A king is coming, a Messiah, a deliverer, and he came and his name was Jesus. He took on flesh, he died, he rose again to break the spell of Dark Island. He, sinless, willingly went into the Holy of Holies, offered his own blood instead of the blood of a bull, sinless blood, so that you and I don't have to be slaves, so that our chains can be gone, we can be free. And he doesn't want us to use that freedom to then be lured into all kinds of slavery again. He wants us to have a fear of him that gives us discernment, but he wants us to have a living encounter with him that enables us to resist these idols of popularity and protection and false prophecy and projects and pride, and you can go on and on. There's many more we didn't have time to talk about. He wants to secure this father-child relationship to give us this living encounter. Hebrews 9, 12, and 14 talks about this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? Encountering Jesus will free us from serving the dead works of popularity and protection and false prophecy and spiritual projects and pride. The light of the world has come and died so that our darkest dreams don't become reality. So that they won't become reality. He died and he rose again to break that spell. And this relationship is our wall. This relationship, this intimate relationship is what defines us, what makes us different from the world. And we have doors where we interact with the world. What are they seeing? Are they seeing women who are set free? Women who have the light of the world? Or are they seeing Dark Island? He entered the Holy of Holies and gave his perfect blood so we could be free. And he's calling us to a living encounter with him so those idols hold nothing over us that we might stay free. Oh, Father, thank you that it's a living encounter with you and a fear of you that defines us. It's our wall. It's what makes us different and distinct. And, Father, I pray that in these doors, in these gates where we interact with the rest of the world, that that's what they see. May we have a fear of you, which is the beginning of wisdom. And may we have a living encounter with you, ongoing, part of being a part of your work so that we might stay free from our darkest dreams becoming reality. In Jesus' name.